All right, good morning and welcome to the 28th annual High Ground Men's Bible and Ski Conference. We've got a great turnout this year, which uh, as the administrator, the coordinator, I'm very thankful. That makes the numbers work, so I appreciate that. Uh, I have some good news, bad news. Good news, the good news is the sun is out. It's going to be a fairly warm day, like mid-30s. Uh, so it's going to be very comfortable. The bad news is the snow that was supposed to happen Monday and Tuesday didn't really happen, uh, so it's a little slick. But the final good news is for all you speed skiers like Kelly, where's Kelly? The runs are in what I call race condition, all right? Slick and fast, so, uh, so be careful out there. Uh, this particular year, this high ground is, is a special meeting because uh, our longtime speaker, actually we have, we have two that have been here for every single high ground. Uh, that's John Mays and Gene Getz. Uh, Gene, this will be his last year to uh, speak to us. We are going to have more of a formal recognition on Friday evening when Gene speaks, but I want to go ahead and announce that so that if any of you want to say a word to Gene, you can do it over the next uh, uh, three days. So, um, so just want to make you aware of that. All right, uh, our speaker this morning, Craig Smith, who is a veteran of high ground. He is the pastor of Vail Bible Church, uh, does a great job uh, here, and he always does a great job for us. So with that limited introduction, Craig, I'll turn it over to you. This is my, I think, fourth time to speak at High Ground. It's an honor to kick off another wonderful conference. A lot more men this year, which is awesome. It's going to be a fantastic time. Randy asked me to be the first speaker each year. That way he can ensure the conference gets better and better with each passing uh, speaker, which is great. And uh, I do know that I will be falsely accused, beaten, tried, and crucified if I keep you longer than 9 o'clock because right behind your affection for Jesus is your affection for that which he made out there to go skiing. And uh, I'll just confess, Rod Miller has been trying to browbeat me into skiing with him for uh, the last several days, but I'm not a skier. Uh, I grew up in southern Arizona in Tucson, very hot, dry desert, no snow, no water. We, we drank from cactus. We're like desert people. That's what we do. So when we moved here to Colorado, rivers and water and snow, that's a whole new world for me. And the things you do with snow and water, that was all new to me, skiing, fishing, boating, all of those kinds of things. So... Uh, I, there was a whole language around these events and these activities. My very first winter, I was sick with like a cold or something. And uh, anyhow, it was just dumping snow that day. And this young doctor walks in and goes, fantastic pow, don't you think? I mean, what do you think of this pow? And I'm going, pow, it's like a new bread. What is, I don't know what pow, pow is. And so I never associated pow with snow. And then that same winter, someone asked me for the very first time, they said, hey, Craig, you going to go rip a few today? And I was thinking, that's a pretty personal question, you know? I mean, we don't, we don't really know each other all that well, at least in this point of the friendship. And so it was all language and vocabulary under the banner of skiing, and I knew little of it, so all I could do is smile and say, come to think of it, I'm going to go rip a bunch today, I guess. How about that, right? So anyhow, let's get to Jesus, right? We'll skip skiing. Uh, today, I'm going to do the one thing you're, you're never supposed to do under any circumstance, no matter what which is this. I'm going to mix politics, government, and taxes with religion. 
What do you think of that, huh? I realize this is Gene Getz's last High Ground Conference as a speaker, and so I'm pretty sure it'll be my last as well. But anyhow, it's election season, right? It's tax season. It's a major topic of debate and interest, so it's very fitting. And any accountants, by the way, here? No, just one. Who <laughs> Jim goes, yeah. <laughs> you don't have to apologize for that. This is my pastoral shout-out to you, Jim. Here we go. So uh, anyhow, thank you. <laughs> Paying taxes, it's a hot topic today. It was 2,000 years ago, believe it or not, a raging debate, in fact. And so uh, it's going to be the issue of taxes, politics. It comes up in the passage today. It's not the main meal at all, but it is a fun little side discursion. And so it's in Mark chapter 12. If you want to join me, that's where we're going to camp out today. And uh, if you want to understand what's happening in this passage with Jesus and his opponents, you need to jump back in history to 6 to 7 A.D., And let me just set the context so you understand what's taking place in Mark chapter 12. Uh, As I just said, this discussion will involve a tax, but it wasn't just any tax. It was a very particular kind of tax called a head tax. And that head tax was an annual tax of one denarius, and when that tax was instituted, there was an insurrection. So the tax itself was not large, but it was symbolic of something more troublesome to a Jew because it wasn't a tax on goods, it was a tax on being, the person. You read about this actually, and there's a man named Judas the Galilean, and he was the one who leads a revolt by way of this tax, and you find out about it in Acts chapter 5, verse 37. You have Peter and the disciples who are proclaiming the good news of the risen Jesus Christ, and the Sanhedrin comes against them. They're angry, and they want to kill them, but a Pharisee named Gamaliel argues on their behalf to keep them alive, and basically his argument was to point them to past insurrections and revolts, and he said this, if it is of man, it will fail. If it's of God, you can't stop it. And then in his argument, he mentions Judas in Acts 5.37. After him, Judas the Galilean appeared in the days of the census, and and he led a band of people in revolt. He too was killed, and all of his followers were scattered. That's Judas the Galilean. He was a Jewish revolutionary who opposed the head tax. And here's what he did. It involved three things. First of all, he called upon all Jews to refuse to pay the tax. Secondly, with an armed band of people, he storms the temple, he cleanses the temple, gets rid of all the foreigners, all the money changers, right? And lastly, he began proclaiming that this revolution would usher in the kingdom of God, that God would be the king over his people and not Caesar. And as Acts 5.37 notes, he's arrested, he's executed. And so now you go to Mark chapter 12, it's 25 years later, And you have this Jesus on the scene who's been preaching throughout Galilee the message of the kingdom of God. And additionally, in Mark chapter 11, the chapter right prior, you find Jesus doing what? He cleanses the temple, overturns the money changers, right? So all that's missing now between Jesus and Judas is for Jesus to lead a revolt around the head tax. You with me? It's good. Jesus or Judas the Galilean, one kind of revolutionary. Now you go to Mark 12, and religious political leaders are going to join together to test another revolutionary. So beginning in verse 37, Jesus has just spoken the parable of the tenants. That was a a parable of judgment against Israel's spiritual leadership. They're mad. They're looking for a way to arrest him, so they're going to lob out a trap. So Mark writes this in verse 37. Later they sent some of the Pharisees and Herodians to Jesus to catch him in his words. So here we go. Two forces joining together to trap Jesus. 
And if you understand these two teams, it's an unlikely group to come together. You have the Pharisees, you know them. They are Jews who are strictly devout and obey the law of Moses. They grudgingly submit to the Roman governor of the land and they have, they have every reason to hate the tax man. All the money they paid didn't go to the synagogue or schools or education. It went right to the army, which had its boot firmly planted on their neck. So they're paying for their oppression. That's the Pharisees. Then you have the Herodians. Those are Jews at the opposite spectrum, right? They're adherents of King Herod, who was put on the throne by the Romans. They ignore Jewish law. They live like Gentiles, enjoying all the luxury of Roman society. So theological opponents and political opponents join forces. It would be like the Amish linking up with the Communist Party. That's what it's like. So why do they join forces? Jesus. They're after Jesus. They want to do away with Jesus, both groups. So they send a delegation from each party, and they're going to test him. They want to smoke him out. And although there's a little bit of differing opinion as to what the test is really about, here's my view. The test is either to get Jesus to offend his followers and lose them or to get him to commit treason and have him arrested and executed like Judas the Galilean. So with the background in mind, Judas, the temple cleansing, the revolution over the the head tax, let's read about the test and we unpack it. Verse 14, they came to Jesus. They said, teacher, we know you are a man of integrity. You aren't swayed by men because you pay no attention to who they are, but you teach the way of God in accordance with the truth. And here comes the test. Is it right to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay or shouldn't we? So first you note how they lead into the question. They lead in with flattery, right? Men, we know this. Always be cautious when someone leads in with flattery, right? Because it's rarely genuine. And in this case, it's not genuine. It's actually evil. And they're naive enough to think that they can butter up God in flesh with flattery. And so then they ask their question in two parts, and it's a political question. And just like it is today, that question was loaded with opinion and emotion back then. So what these opponents are after is they want to smoke out Jesus's politics. What is his political persuasion? Which side of the aisle is he on, right? So they ask him a yes or no question. Should we pay this head tax to Caesar, yes or no? And you say, well, why is that such a difficult test for Jesus? Well, think about it. If Jesus says, yeah, pay the tax, then he's siding with the Herodians and he's proving his message and his ministry to be a sham and thus all the Jews would say, that's that's a heretical non-Orthodox Jew. And he'll deeply offend them and he'll lose face. But if he says, no, don't pay the tax, oh, well, now he's guilty of treason to Caesar, right? So we can arrest him and execute him. So they're trying to put Jesus in a very deep dialogical place of doo-doo is what they're trying to do. They want to trap him. So what's Jesus going to do? Well, here's what he's not going to do. He's not going to pull both camps to see which political position might be more popular, right? (laughs) He's going to turn the question on its head by way of the response, and he's going to make it about image and ownership. So he'll turn the tables on these two groups because the issue isn't really about taxes and politics. The issue is going to be about image and ownership. So he's asked to give either a yes or no answer, and I believe he gives neither. Verse 15, but Jesus knew their hypocrisy. and He says, why are you trying to trap me? Bring me a denarius, that's the head tax, 
and let me look at it. They brought the coin, and he asked them, whose portrait is this and whose inscription? Caesar's, they replied. And then Jesus said to them, give to Caesar what is Caesar's, and to God what is God's. It's a fascinating response. The opponents are going to think so as well. Jesus doesn't answer their question immediately. Instead, he says, bring me a coin, a denarius, that same coin offered for the head tax. Now, we know a lot about these silver coins. They're in museums. In fact, my wife and I bought one when we were in Israel. And inscribed on the denarius were these words. So listen closely. Tiberius Caesar, son of the god Augustus, Pontifus Maximus, which means high priest. So Caesar had a coin with his image on it that essentially said this, King, Son of God, High Priest. Caesar clearly didn't lack for self-esteem, did he? (laughs) Right? It's an interesting title that Jesus is asking them to look at, isn't it? And then Jesus tells his opponents, give to Caesar what's made in his image. In other words, his money. Whose portrait is this? Whose inscription? Caesar's, they respond. So Jesus said, give to Caesar what is his. Jesus is saying, this denarius has Caesar's image on it. It is his, and literally it was his because he minted it out of his own wealth. So give it to him. Give to him what belongs to him. You say, what does a tyrant deserve? Well, according to Jesus, he deserves his money, right? And there remains a statement there about how Jesus viewed the relationship of God's people to the state and government. His answer gives you and I as Christ followers some some insight because he makes a distinction between human authority and God's authority. And so per this response, let me take us on a little political side discussion. This is where I get banned from speaking at high ground ever again, which is fine. So I want to just lift up Tim Keller's political advice to Christians. You know Tim Keller. He's a brilliant thinker, gifted theologian, Christian pastor and author, And he has some insights here regarding how Christians should relate to politics and government per this particular passage with Jesus. First, he argues Christ followers should avoid political simplicity. So Jesus was asked a yes or no question related to the tax on one side or the other. Which will you be, Jesus? He didn't give a yes or no answer, did he? They want a simple answer. Jesus wouldn't keep it simple. And Keller argues that when it comes to Christians and politics, follow the example of Jesus. Avoid political simplicity, meaning don't try and claim that any one party or program is the, quote, Jesus party. That's hard for some of us. Jesus is red. No, Jesus is blue. It's that kind of thinking. For example, take a biblical topic like this, environmental stewardship. We all are committed to Genesis chapter 1. God says, steward my creation well, right? So let's say you're a very thoughtful, theological Christian who believes the environment is the number one political issue on the table. That position is going to land you in a particular camp and or program. It's a good thing. But let's say there's another thoughtful, theological, biblically-driven Christian who believes that fighting injustice and poverty and caring for the destitute, that's the number one political issue. Because all throughout Scripture, God champions those very people. Well, that position is going to land you in a different camp and program, and those are two opposing camps arguing for two biblical values, and neither should claim that theirs is the Jesus-only camp. That's Keller's point. So he says, avoid political simplicity. Next, he says, Christians should avoid political complacency. Jesus did say, give to Caesar what is Caesar's, his money. But his answer shows he refuses to give to Caesar something that doesn't belong to Caesar. The status of deity. 
Jesus was saying, give to him what belongs to him. Don't give to him what doesn't belong to him. There are boundaries placed around Caesar's power and people's allegiance to him. So human government is made up of human beings who are fallen and prone to error. So don't just passively accept everything government wants. Rather, Keller notes Christians should be active, involved, engaged in fighting for God's agenda over and against the governments when the two oppose each other. So praise God for Kelly Shackelford and Liberty. Right? It's exactly what that point is. Be active, be responsible, place the kingdom of God over the kingdoms of men. So avoid political complacency. Then lastly, Keller says, avoid political primacy. This is where some Christians get tripped up unknowingly. Don't allow yourself to put your ultimate allegiance and devotion and hope and faith in a human government. God has ultimate authority. God is the ultimate governor over peoples and nations. And some Christians elevate their politics to a place of primacy. And they put all of their eggs in a political basket, and Jesus didn't. His answer pointed his opponent's eyes to a, a human, uh, above a human ruler, to the ultimate ruler. So ultimate allegiance belongs to God alone, not a political system. Keller challenges us, and I think it's a good thing to think through in light of today and where we're at in our country in the process. So which do you tend to gravitate towards? Political simplicity, political complacency, ah, whatever's going to happen happens, or political primacy? Jesus said, give to Caesar what is made in his image, that's his money. And the New Testament writers would, would build on Jesus' teaching there, if you If you recall, you might have Paul's words in Romans 13, uh, verses 6 and 7. This is also why you pay taxes, for the authorities are God's servants who give their full time to governing. So give everyone what you owe him. If you owe taxes, pay taxes. If revenue, then revenue. If respect, then respect. If honor, then honor. It sounds much like the answer Jesus gave in Mark 12. So Paul argues here, even government authorities are under God's authority. Thus, if money belonged to Caesar, as Jesus states in Mark 12, money belongs even more so to God. So that's the first half of Jesus' brilliant answer. Give to Caesar what's made in his image, his money. Then you turn to the main issue in the response. The Herodians and Pharisees thought they could trap and smoke out Jesus with a question about taxes. But Jesus is turning it into an issue of what? Image and ownership. So he takes it from a choice of voting to the right of the aisle or the left of the aisle, and he says it's about voting up. It's the real issue. And he says implicitly and explicitly, then give to God what's made in his image, which is what? It's your very life. Give to Caesar what is made in his image, his money, but give to God that which is made in his image, and that is you. The denarius was made in Caesar's image. You were made in the image of God. So Jesus concludes and says, give to God what is God's. And that was brilliant. And they were amazed. Of course they were. And the reason that they were amazed was not just because Jesus trumped their trap, but then he confronts them with the greater issue on the table. Where is your true allegiance and devotion to God? Whoever's image is on something has ownership of that very thing. Caesar owned a coin. And God is the rightful owner of human beings because we bear his image, right? Genesis 1.27, God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him male and female. He created them. So Jesus says, give to God what is God's. Give your very life to God for you bear his image. But not all do, do they? 
Just like some refuse to pay taxes and face consequences, some refuse to give their lives to the God who owns them, and thus they face the consequences. But for those who heed Jesus' deeper message, there is tremendous reward. The moment that we gave our life to Christ, the Spirit of God came into our hearts and did what? Put His signature there. The stamp. It's what Paul explained in 2 Corinthians 1.22. Now, it is God who makes both us and you stand firm in Christ. He anointed us. He set his seal of ownership on us, and he put his spirit in our hearts as a deposit guaranteeing what is to come. So when the Christian is asked, whose portrait is on your life, whose inscription, we should answer, God's. I belong to God. His image is on my heart, and he has ownership of me. I pay my taxes, maybe even with a groan, but I worship my God. I I steward my role, my responsibility to, to government and state to avoid political simplicity, complacency, and primacy, but my ultimate allegiance is to God. You see, when the Jews paid the tax to Caesar, here's why they didn't like it. It made them feel like a slave to a man. And Jesus said, you're not slaves to the Romans, you belong to God. And Paul would pick up on that same idea and he would say in Romans 6.22, but now that you have been set free from sin and you have become what? Slaves to God. The benefits you reap leads to holiness and eternal life for the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus. To belong to God, Paul said, means to be a slave to God which leads to life and holiness and eternity with him through Jesus Christ. So he has set his seal of ownership on the heart and the life of the Christian, and we are made in his image at birth, and then we are remade in his image at rebirth. And the moment we give our faith to Jesus as Lord, from there we're to give to God what is made in God's image. So with ownership comes allegiance. Caesar not only wanted his subjects' taxes, he wanted their worship. And Jesus wouldn't give him what wasn't owed to him. He can have his money, but not the worship of people. That belongs to God alone. And if you belong to God this morning, then you owe him your allegiance, as do I, all of our allegiance. And so Paul summarizes it like this in Romans 14, 8. If we live, we live to the Lord. And if we die, we die to the Lord. So whether we live or die, we belong to the Lord. Both in life and in death, we belong to the Lord. So while we live, we live for Him. Our thoughts, our actions, our ambitions, our decisions carried out with a view of what? What honors and pleases Him. We bear His image and His imprint, and His Son died to purchase our salvation. So then He puts His Spirit in our hearts to lead us in this life. That's His inscription. And it's not just an image and an inscription that shows up on parts of your life. It doesn't just show up on your life on a Sunday morning, depending if it's a fresh pow day or not. It's not just an image, an inscription that's only stamped on the area of your finances or the area of your morality or the area of your business. Sometimes we think, well, God has ownership over those parts that I want to give to him. No, the imprint of God is on all of the Christian's life all of the time, and with that ownership comes allegiance. And thus, we're to give to God what belongs to God. In my finances, my career, my family, my children, my relationships, my friendships, my body, my morality, my sexuality, my values, my character, my talents, my abilities, my heart, my mind, my thoughts, my actions, and yes, even my politics. 
He is over all of our lives such that in all of life, whether we live for Christ or die for Christ, we are to give to God what is God's. So I just took you on a 25-minute excursion to ask one question for you to wrestle with over the course of the next several days as you enjoy each other and fellowship and you're, you're encouraging each other as you listen to such gifted communicators, somehow that God would show to you, here's the area of your life of which I have my image upon that you haven't given back to me. What is it? You give to Caesar what is Caesar's, but you give to God what is God's. And whatever that might be for you, the Spirit of God will help you in that. Turn it over to Him. Trust Him with it. That area belongs in His hands because when it's in His hands, you'll find blessing and life and joy. And as long as we keep it in our hands, we are vulnerable and susceptible to the traps of the world and the enemy of God. So will you render to God that which belongs to God? You know, the Pharisees and Herodians stood amazed that day. But they weren't amazed enough to give to God that which belonged to God because the very next thing they do is go figure out another trap they can try and set for the Son of God. And I don't think Jesus was interested that day, nor is he interested in this day in simply amazing his opponents. I think he's interested in seeing people made in the image of God give to God what is God's. That's their life and their worship in all things. Might it be a sweet time for you this week on this mountain in this place of incredible beauty to give back to God that which He's asking of you. That's the challenge. So let's pray. <coughs> Father, we thank You for the great gift of Your Word which is alive and active and well. And thank you for the story, the encounter, the narrative in Mark chapter 12 by which we see your son masterfully confronting those who are trying to trap him. And as he always does so well, he takes the issue that's brought to him, he turns it upside down so that they could deal with the real issue. And the real issue today for us this morning to contemplate with you is this. Your image is upon our lives. From our physical birth, we were made in your image. From our spiritual rebirth, we were also then recreated in your image by your spirit, which has its seal of ownership upon us. And so as men before you, Lord, there are some things in our lives, no question, that bear your image, that rightfully belong back in your hands that we have kept from you. And that could be a myriad of things depending on where we're at but might your Spirit graciously guide us to loosen our grip around that particular area such that we can give to you what belongs to you. And in doing so, it's just our response and act of worship because your Son came to live a life we couldn't live, perfect, to die a death we should have died in our place and rose again to grant us this life we never deserved, and that's all grace. And so we belong to you. So help us to render to you that which belongs. We thank you for your word. We thank you for this time. And might you journey into our hearts and minds this week, and we pray it in Christ's good name. Amen. Amen. Thanks, men.